Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Alan Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, here we are in 2023. A very warm welcome to all of you. Thank you for being with us. I suspect you've read plenty about me since I was last on air. And yes, I did have a long stint in hospital with more surgery on my back. But the good news, at least for me, is that for the first time in many, many years, I have no back pain. I'm still on the rehab circuit, but all is well. And contrary to some reports, I'm still living in Sydney, though I have sold the farm, but ready to crank things up here at ADH, tackling the issues that matter to you. This has been a pioneering journey for us all, and you have contributed enormously. The extraordinary figures of last year should be shared with you. We had 35 million minutes of Alan Jones watched across 31 countries last year. The boys here are behind this project and they are very gifted, they're fastidious and they're knowledgeable in the compilation of these figures. We produced last year 98 episodes of Alan Jones, four a week, totaling three hours each week. We averaged 360,000 views per episode, nearly the population of Canberra. Unbelievable viewership. While you've found your way to join us, don't hesitate to tell your friends. And as I've always said throughout my broadcasting career, my listeners and viewers are my best researchers. So don't hesitate to be in touch. The correct email, and you can see it there, is alanjones at adh.tv. Alanjones at adh.tv. You can follow my commentary, my editorials, and any discussions I have with guests on many platforms. Firstly, here on ADH TV, I will be recording two episodes a week this year, which you can watch live by streaming on the ADH TV app on your smartphone, your iPad, or your smart TV device, Tuesdays and Wednesdays at 8 p.m. I've cut down the load a little this year, and I'm sure you can appreciate why, but you can always watch the program on demand. As always, You'll be able to watch snippets of my episodes and editorial comment on my Facebook and YouTube pages. Just search Alan Jones and there's plenty on there. If you can't watch my episodes, you can listen to them on podcast. Just search Alan Jones. And that means if you're out on a walk or in the car, you'll never miss an episode. But yielding to your demands, I am working with the team here at ADH TV to launch a second podcast show which will have a different flavour to it, and I'll let you know about that very, very shortly. Well, let's get on with the show. This is where, on ADH, you get the real story, not the woke story. We don't have backroom people here with little experience in broadcasting bellowing what can and can't be said. 
So many issues have dominated the news since we were last together. Many of them are very disturbing. Many of them require answers. But before I go into some detail, I note only some hours ago that the Prime Minister has announced that our government, quote, will provide an initial $10 million in humanitarian assistance to those affected by the Turkish and Syrian earthquakes. Now, we all feel sorry for their predicament. $10 million. And the Prime Minister said, quote, Australia's assistance will target those in greatest need. Unquote. Immediately, just immediately, 10 million. What must our victims of bushfire and flood be thinking? Within 24 hours, Turkey and Syria get $10 million. And as my old man would say, these poor bastards, victims of flood and fire, have to fill out forms till their fingers have calluses on them. You work that out because I can't. Well, more disbelief. Are we to believe that Brittany Higgins has allegedly secured a multi-million dollar taxpayer-funded compensation deal after one day of mediation talks? Allegedly a multi-million dollar personal injury claim. And lawyers representing the Commonwealth settled the claim less than a fortnight before Christmas. We're told that, quote, parties have agreed that the terms of the settlement are confidential, unquote. What? confidential taxpayers' money, and we don't know how much she's paid or why. It is alleged the claim was for future economic loss, past economic loss, general damages, and future assistance with at-home care, and past and future out-of-pocket expenses. What the hell is going on here? Wasn't the same woman completing a degree at Griffith University at the same time this was all taking place? And what status entitles her to anything? The legal matter involving her is unresolved. Compensation of this kind surely suggests a wrong done to this woman, which is unproven. But reportedly at the quest of Ms Higgins, the actual cash amount agreed to by the Commonwealth will remain a secret. Well, who represented the Commonwealth and agreed to this secrecy with taxpayers' money? Federal opposition, where are you? The taxpayer is allegedly compensating Ms Higgins for lost earnings, future earnings and at-home support because she hadn't worked full-time since she went public with her account of this alleged incident. My understanding is that an official claim was never filed. Does she walk away with allegedly $3 million of taxpayers' money? And if she suffered loss of earnings, what about the defendant? Is he hung out to dry? It's beyond extraordinary when you're talking about these amounts of money that no paid parliamentarian has opened his or her mouth about this surely unacceptable development. This is taxpayers' money and taxpayers are entitled to know. Well, let me go to another issue. Many media outlets boast about free speech, but they're often the architects of denying that which they purport to support. I well recall a major media entity in this country, to be specific, on the 11th of October 2021, issuing a 16-page special, and it was called Mission Zero, telling all of us why we need to get to net zero by 2050 and what we need to do to get there.
Net zero, of course, carbon dioxide emissions, but no one's proved that carbon dioxide causes any problems at all. It's the source of all planned life. But anyway, that same media outlet is now arguing that such delivery is, quote, becoming more problematic by the day, unquote. Precisely what I've warned for years on this whole climate change hoax. But that same media outlet, enthusiastic about net zero, is now saying only days ago, quote, Labor's signature climate policy is under attack from all quarters. Without bipartisan support, Labor is exposed to the demands of the Greens who want future coal and gas developments banned, unquote. And one of its editorials points out that, quote, manufacturing sectors have warned a poor transition that fails to consider Australia's international competitiveness could see our industries collapse. Hello. How many times have you heard me warn of that on this program, a virtual loan voice? The Mission Zero is looking every day more like a mission to disaster. Indeed, four days ago, an editorial in the same media outlet warned, quote, already there are first signs of a capital strike as big business wakes to the reality of government intervention in energy markets, unquote. I said this long ago. This is the business about the Albanese government putting a cap on what the producer can charge for his product, whether it's coal or gas or beef or even theatre production. The producer investor will obviously take his money somewhere else. As I've repeatedly warned, this government intervention is going to worsen the energy crisis. I will be returning to this subject, but I have warned about it for years and now the energy Armageddon is upon us. Consider this. Why is Anthony Albanese Prime Minister? Not because he beat Scott Morrison. He's Prime Minister because Bill Shorten isn't. Why isn't Bill Shorten Prime Minister? Because Chris Bowen took a tax policy to the electorate that was punitive and economically destructive and then said, if you don't like it, don't vote for us. And that's what the nation did. The same Chris Bowen is now imposing an energy policy on the electorate which will be economically destructive. And that destruction has already begun. And unless Anthony Albanese sees the folly of all of this, he'll go the way of Bill Shorten. Now, remember, I want your thoughts or indeed your questions. And I'll ask them, what do you think? Give us a call, Alan Jones at adh.tv. Look, it must be demoralising to many decent Australians to hear the kerfuffle and indeed humbug about the crisis, and yes, it is a crisis, in Alice Springs. Why demoralising and why is it humbug, bordering on hypocrisy? Well, for years I have spoken to Jacinta Nampajimpa-Price, now an outstanding senator. She and I have talked on air on various platforms about the crisis in the Northern Territory. Jacinta, with first-hand experience of the crisis, has been ignored for years, as has her mother, Bess Price, both very well-educated, both with extraordinary experience in education, training and public administration, both significant Indigenous figures. Bess Price, when elected to the Northern Territory Parliament in 2012, gained a swing of 18%. Such was her standing in the community. Jacinda's mother, Bess, was nominated in 2012 for the US International Women of Courage Award. Now, I only say this because both Jacinta and her mother have articulated the Alice Springs Northern Territory problem for years. Their voice has been ignored. Indeed, Jacinta Price, Senator Jacinta Price, is a metaphor of the violence problem. 
When she stood for the federal parliament at the 2019 election for the lower house, the Greens candidate posted a picture of Jacinta drinking from a coconut with a caption, it is not every day you see a coconut drinking from a coconut. That didn't inspire any headlines or indeed punishment because I suppose Jacinta was standing for the Liberal Party. Proof that in politics, the enemy is often within. One Indigenous tribal leader said of Jacinta Price, then the Deputy Mayor of Alice Springs, quote, how about you effing die a painful death, you sell out coconut? You need to be eradicated like the disease you are. Another told her to quote, F off and die. Another said, you need a spearing and a shooting. You see, she was a Liberal candidate not a headline or a punishment for any of that verbal violence and intimidation. Another said, if I see you anywhere around Alice Springs, I'm going to F the F out of you, you see. Jacinta Price's crime is to make for many years powerful speeches on how to fix Aboriginal poverty and violence towards Aboriginal women. She has been ignored. Yet now they're talking about a voice to the parliament, which I will look at tomorrow. We have such a voice. It's powerful. It's informed. It's been ignored. Suddenly, the Labor Party and the Prime Minister have woken up to the issue of violence in the Northern Territory. As you can see from the comments I've just cited, it's violence from Aboriginal Australians to Aboriginal Australians. Jacinta Price must be wondering what is new. In 2020, Jacinta went to Canberra with a video revealing appalling violence highlighting that in one of the communities, one, 184 children were victims of abuse. 35 men were facing 300 charges and a further 124 were suspects. She was called a race traitor. She went to Canberra, joined by the cousins of a 15-year-old Layla Leering who had been raped and died. The three Aboriginal women, including the 15-year-old softly spoken cousin, we're trying to get the then federal government, federal parliament, to address girls being raped and beaten in the Northern Territory years ago. The media were nowhere to be found. Preoccupied with Brittany Higgins, and you might remember the story about men in the parliament pleasuring themselves. Indeed, at the time, there were women marching and spitting and hissing about equality. Not a single Green attended Jacinta Price. Not a member of the Labor Party were interested in Jacinta or the plight of raped girls. Jacinta Price was only 12 when she lay all night with her baby cousin after her parents had rescued the one and a half year old boy from alcohol fueled violence. Jacinta put the little boy to sleep next to her. The toddler's father, a man Jacinta loved deeply, died from excessive alcohol consumption. Only now, since Jacinta made it known that in the first sitting week, of the new parliamentary year this week, she would present a bill that would restore sweeping alcohol bans to Alice Springs and its surrounding communities. Her bill would force grog bans in communities until they developed alcohol management plans. The Prime Minister has now been mugged by political reality over a crisis that Jacinta has talked about for years. Now the Prime Minister has been forced to endorse alcohol bans that he refused to adopt last year, that he has opposed since, despite evidence and pleas from people on the ground. Senator Jacinta Price joins me in very disturbing circumstances.
Jacinda, thank you for your time. It is no comfort to you to know that you've talked about this problem for years. Is anything the federal government is now doing likely to adequately address the problem? Oh, look, they like to think that they're going to adequately address the problem, uh, announcing $250 million Band-Aid um, interim solutions is not the answer to this situation and and basically handballing all that responsibility back over to the Northern Territory government uh, who have consistently failed, who have consistently um, chose not to listen to uh, vulnerable community members, uh, Aboriginal organisations calling for the reinstatement of these measures and pretty much the Chief Minister up until yesterday uh, was calling those alcohol restrictions um, racist, um, race-based policy that she completely and utterly disagreed with and now she's had to backflip um, despite all of that. Uh, but you know, Albanese, he doesn't, he's not interested in really solving this issue. You know, here, here's $250 million, go do with it what you please and um, go and put, but reinstate um, those restrictions on your own watch and I'm going to go back to the tennis, basically. Mm. See, I said you're a metaphor of this whole problem because you had violence of the worst possible kind directed at you when you stood for the seat of Lingiari in 2019. No one was concerned then about that violent language. And even after the election of the Albanese government, Penny Wong, who I think has done a very good job as foreign minister, said that one of her first acts would be to deliver a First Nations foreign policy. Jacinda, what the hell is that? Wouldn't we all like to know what <laughs> uh, First Nations foreign policy actually is? Uh, I, I did question her on it and she went on about some waffle about, you know, respecting the Uluru statement from the heart. And <laughs> I said, oh, come on. You know, I put it back to her. I said, "Would that, that was 250 elected individuals you're trying to say represented all of Aboriginal Australia. Do you, I said to her, do you think that 0.03% of the Asian population, if they were to sign a statement um, on behalf of all Asian Australians, I could then uh, consult with them in terms of policies that affect your life as an Asian Australian. I don't think she liked that mm. approach so much. I just mm. find it so paternalistic uh, of yeah. Penny Wong See, to try I, to suggest that this I, I, concept I hate is... to revisit these things with you, but the public need to have an understanding of what you're talking about. You've said that your standout childhood memories are of loved ones succumbing to grog, the horrific murder of your aunt, the sexual assault, your words, in some way, shape or form of every woman in your family. Jacinta, who cared then and who cares today? Oh, you know, everyday Australians cared. That, that, that's who cared, everyday Australians. Um, you know, there were some coalition MPs um, previously that 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 certainly cared, that wanted to, to bring about change. Um, I, I found a lot of my concerns probably fell on deaf ears with our previous um, Minister for Indigenous Australians, Ken Wyatt. Uh, it was frustrating um, trying to communicate with him. I know this, this Labor, federal Labor government, absolutely don't care because they're not actually prepared to, for the benefit of, of these kids that are on our streets at night to work in a mm. bipartisan capacity mm. to deal with these issues, to, to to bring about solutions. I mean, Peter Dutton's called, you know, called the Prime Minister back in October after I took him around to those some of those town camps and spoke to community members 
and asked him, you know, let's do this together. I'm happy to work in a bipartisan way to try and solve some of these issues. And, and Peter Dutton went on to call for a royal commission into the sexual abuse of Indigenous children. And, you know, the Prime Minister didn't listen then. He certainly hasn't listened now. Uh, and he's not going to because he clearly knows what's best. But he will wait until a referendum is called. And should that be successful, he'll wait another few years to establish this voice thing. And that's the voices he will listen to. He won't listen to those democratically elected Aboriginal voices currently sitting in Parliament. How much is alcohol a factor in all of this? Look, alcohol is um, is a factor. It's, it's a huge factor, but it's not. It, it, it's it's what exacerbates the underlying issues that we're mm. that we're dealing with here, and we're dealing with. Um, you know, now we're coming into generations of children who have been left in um, dysfunctional circumstances uh, where their human rights haven't been upheld uh, and because of the fact that they're Indigenous and, oh, scary, scary, you know, authorities might be called racist for upholding their human rights uh, because of the stolen generation and um, you, they've been left to languish pretty much and, and this, is, this is ongoing failure in the name of political correctness. Yes, that's right. You were going to present a bill that would force grog bans in communities until they developed alcohol management plans. Are you going ahead with that? I have um, introduced my motion to the Senate. So tomorrow I'll be speaking to the bill. Uh, and the bill is about reinstating those um, restrictions out in communities. But it's also it's a partnership agreement, basically, between the federal government and the territory government. So it's not just a complete handball to the territory mm. government who have been failing, but the federal government will have oversight, will will approve alcohol management plans for those communities that want um, to have alcohol in those communities, but it can't be done without first, you know, going through a rigorous process of an alcohol management um, plan. Well, let me just uh, come to that, that Jacinda, will... about these alcohol management plans. Uh, they, I understand they'll have to be voted on by all residents. Now, why wouldn't women and vulnerable residents in the ballot process be bullied into voting in favour of booze going back into their communities? Who'll stop that? Well, so, so in terms of the Territory Government, they're proposing in their legislation that they would offer um, a vote uh, for those communities to have those alcohol management plans. My proposal differs in that if that if they want an alcohol management plan, then a, a committee must be formed with um, stakeholders, uh, equitable, uh, equitable equitable representation of both women and men drinkers and non-drinkers, experts, the Liquor Commission, uh, in order to do that, because I think it's that process that will decide whether yeah. those plans will be but, but um, you, effective or not. Are you confident that some machinery will exist to stop the fear and intimidation that will be directed at non-drinkers by those who want the mm. alcohol bans to be lifted. Uh, look, that that is what that whole process will be about, and ultimately it'll be about the the minister then having oversight and saying, okay, this um, this is thorough. It has given a voice to everybody in the community and can go, yes, um, this is approved. But if there if if there is uh, people in that community that are that, that are really deeply concerned, their voices will be heard right. within that particular process. If there are um, people living, uh, if if there are people just into living in what you call these hell holes, and they're mm -hmm. cut off from takeaway alcohol, 
are they going to come mm. into town, which is where the problems are at the moment? So um, at the moment, um, within those vulnerable town camps and communities, alcohol is uh, available. It can be drunk in those places. Um, the measures that I propose in this bill would address um, the issue of um, the, the, the the black market sale of alcohol and, the, and, and, and there would be... Um, Basically, people who wanted to commit that crime would obviously be prosecuted for those crimes. So there will be measures in place um, for that within this bill. Now, my bill is not um, is not going to be um, a, a silver bullet. It's a measure. It's yeah, one measure, yeah. and there needs to be a, a whole raft of measures, yeah. a suite of measures. Mm. Um, our police force needs to be better resourced yeah. and supported. In fact, I'd call for. Um, I would call for call for our um, chief commissioner, chief commissioner, the commissioner of police, to probably step down because he, uh, uh, under his watch, this has deteriorated mm. as well. But he still remains in yeah. that position. Yes, I mean, just and, so and, just so that our viewers know on that, I mean, the assaults we're talking about in this recent report, this Darrell Anderson report, which was presented, identified assaults on women. This is horrific. Who present mm. to hospital? with horrific facial injuries, broken bones, fractured skulls, and then, of course, in tragic situations, even death. Jacinda, when is this going to stop? Well, this is going to stop when we treat Australians equally instead mm. of along the lines of race, and we're not afraid to talk about um, why this has come about. When We're not afraid to ask members of our most vulnerable community to take responsibility uh, for what's going on. And we're not afraid to um, actually reinforce things like um, the fact that, you know, children should be attending school and if they're not and their families are failing them and they're suffering abuse, they should be allowed to uh, to be cared for in families that are upholding their human Absolutely. rights. Absolutely. And Stop. adoption should be available yeah. to those children to, 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 to have that permanent st um, care status, you know, See, stable families. If I could just say to our viewers, this is an outstanding Australian, this woman, because this particular problem she's lived with. Now, Jacinta... It's, I know it's hard to revisit this, but many of your family still live in these town mm. camps. You've described them as hell holes. You lost your cousin, Regina, in December, mm. only a couple of months ago, a 42-year-old mm. non-drinker who lived her whole life in a town camp. It was two days after Christmas. You said that her death could be attributed to the stress and conditions of living in one of these hell holes and that drunken families... Even people who didn't know Regina would turn up in her house, go through the fridge, eat everything, so they would never have food. Now, your words, mm -hmm. and I quote, they could never, ever, ever really just live a life that was about themselves. There were always people drinking at night, people drunk at night, and violence. And then you said this, having sat by the hospital bed, this is awful stuff, having sat by the hospital bed those last few days, in a palliative care unit with my cousin. She was happy to die. She was so ready to be at peace because that was really the only peace she was ever going to get to ultimately die. And then you said the sad thing, that is their normal. For everyday Australians living on the northern beaches or something like that, it's a complete and utter world away. It's like Beirut. You could never fathom it unless you actually live there. Jacinta, 
how will anything the federal government is doing, including this wretched voice, which we should have nothing to do with, listen to this voice, we've got a voice, how will anything address these issues? Well, it, it, like I said, it takes being really, really honest about what's going on. Um, if we were to do anything substantial, we would be reviewing where all this funding, these millions and billions Absolutely. of dollars have been going over these years to yep. address this disadvantage and failing to do so and holding to account those people on six-figure salaries in Aboriginal organisations who were supposed to produce outcomes. And I'd say what it, if, think, if there are programs and, and organisations that are being successful, then yes, invest further into them. But otherwise, do away with those that aren't and mm. hold people to account mm. uh, for, for failing to deliver. $30,000 every year, $30 billion, $30,000 million to so-called close the gap and the gap gets wider. Look, the unfashionable question to ask, I mean, didn't the so-called stolen generation arise because attempts were made to save children from these atrocities? That's absolutely right. I mean, that was the narrative that was kept from the Australian people. But Australians aren't stupid. And, and there are a lot of people who, you know, Indigenous Australians who are part of the supposed stolen generation who understand, in fact, their circumstances came about because they were removed for the fact yes. that they were in dysfunctional yes. situations. And, and, and they appreciate the fact that they were giving an opportunity to have a better yes, life yes, and to have an education. Yes. And if you look at the current state of play, look who is running those uh, Aboriginal organisations. They are people who predominantly come from the stolen generation. Those who weren't removed, those with their first language who's not English, those that are still living connected to traditional culture are the most marginalised Abor Aboriginal Australians and they should be where we focus our efforts, Absolutely. not on elites who want to have their positions um, internally embedded into the constitution so they can, so their jobs are maintained, so the gravy trains main, gravy train is maintained and so the gap um, it's, remains it's wider there and wider. because... See, how many people in government... Oh, sorry. I was going to say, ultimately, we want the gap to close. Yes. But the voice is suggesting it'll never be closed because there'll always be disadvantage. Hmm. How many people governing us in capital cities across the country would want their kids living in these circumstances? <laughs> Absolute zero. Not even the Minister for Territory families would put her children back out in those dysfunctional, horrible households where, those, where, where her children would be at risk of, of sexual abuse, neglect, uh, all of those things that is allowed to be allowed to happen to Aboriginal kids. That mm. to me is the ultimate racism, that lowering of standards uh, and not upholding the human rights of Australian children. Mm. Jacinta, there are thousands and thousands of people watching you at the moment, and I know what they're saying. This woman is our Australian of the year. I want to say to you what I've said to you before, you've got a platform here whenever you need it. You're a wonderful, wonderful human being. Thank you for your courage and your commitment. Time to get off and have a feed and a sleep. <laughs> but thank you for joining us tonight. There she is, Senator Jacinta so Price. Well, the most repetitive comment to me in the last several months concerns this obsession with welcome to country. There's virtually nothing that is done in Australia today without the injection of welcome to country. In the program for the current production of Hamilton, 
The ritual is repeated. I quote, the Hamilton Company pays its respects to elders past and present and so it goes on. If you listen to the races on Saturday, the same rhetoric is repeated. You catch a plane and you're forced fed welcome to country. Children at primary school and secondary school know this stuff off by heart. Now, I don't want anyone to imagine that I'm trying to be controversial, that I'm anti-Indigenous Australians. I put my hand in my pocket on countless occasions to assist Indigenous Australians in difficulty. That is not the issue. Welcome to country has become an almost permanent feature at the beginning of any function anywhere. As I've just said, the opening of Parliament, the opening of an art exhibition, an academic conference, a school assembly, before they play State of Origin Rugby League at the presentation, as you saw, of the trophies at the recent Australian Tennis Championships. Pauline Hanson said on this program last year, I'm sick of hearing it. She's not alone. Everywhere I go, people are saying to me, enough is enough. Well, let me say something at the outset. If someone wants to mount an historic argument about whether Australia was invaded or colonised by Europeans, whether it was discovered by Europeans or Aborigines, that's fine. There is often no right or wrong answer in the study of history, which brings into focus the work of the Australian historian Keith Windshuttle. Keith Windshuttle is on record as saying, and I quote, whenever Labor governments have gained power in the past decade, they've made it compulsory for every government instrumentality and many independent organisations they fund to begin every public meeting with a ceremonial acknowledgement of Aboriginal traditional landowners, unquote wrote Wind Shuttle, and I quote, this ritual is now virtually inescapable. From the opening of state and federal parliaments to writers' festivals, art exhibitions, academic conferences, school assemblies, indeed, anywhere those in the public sector gather, unquote. Now, this has reached such a dimension that you now have senators like Banton Thorpe telling us that the flag doesn't represent them. And Senator Lydia Thorpe saying, with the authority of being a member of parliament, that our Australian flag had connotations of, quote, invasion and dispossession. And she wants to question the, quote, legitimate occupation of our country. And for people to know, quote, whose land they are on. And that the first people, quote, never ceded sovereignty, unquote. Well, now Lydia Thorpe has left the Greens because she wants to, quote, grow and amplify the black sovereign movement in Australia, unquote. You know what that means? And they might be militant, uh, but they are a minority. Senator Thorpe got 40,000 votes in the last election. She's entitled to her view. But it's a minority view, and we should never be yielding to minorities. Jacinta Price, to whom I've just spoken, is right to accuse people like Banton Thorpe of, quote, nothing but contempt for the Australian people. Now, remember, people like Lydia Thorpe and Adam Bant are welcomed into our schools across the country, and they preach this stuff to young, impressionable minds with all the authority that's being conferred by being a member of parliament, that we're living on stolen land, that we're here illegitimately, and that whatever property your family might have, it, by inference, isn't yours at all. Because the first people, quote, never ceded sovereignty. Hence the welcome, welcome to country. It's not yours, but you're welcome. The next thing, mark my words, is they'll be demanding we pay rent. You see, whatever is conceded to this fringe left-wing element is never enough. Kevin Rudd did the apology. That was supposed to be it. But it's never enough. Just look at your screens here. Now, have a look at that. 
Well, this is the number of registered corporations by regions. You can see it there in Australia as at June 30, 2021. 3,352 registered Aboriginal corporations. Now, as well, the Prime Minister has an Indigenous Advisory Council. There are more than 30 land councils. And you can see there 3,352 Aboriginal corporations. There's a so-called Council of Peaks, which represents 70 Aboriginal organisations. The Aboriginal population of Australia is officially 3.8%. We have 11 Aboriginal MPs in the Federal Parliament, which represents 4.8% of the Parliament. But now they want an Aboriginal voice. I'll come to that in later programs. I went to a funeral some weeks ago of a very dear friend, my first doctor in Sydney, a distinguished man who was variously a chemical engineer with first-class academic qualifications from Sydney University. He then became a doctor and he was outstanding, a gentle soul to whom there were no good or bad people. All people were treated equally by him, chemical engineer, then a doctor. But then the drug scourge was overtaking young people. They'd come to his surgery and tell their story. He learnt that there were people out there who had no one to defend them and no means of defending themselves. So he told me he'd go back to uni to get a law degree. So he did. So he practised medicine from Monday to Wednesday, midday, put the wig on and defended these poor coots on Thursday and Friday. He sold up his lucrative practice and his assets in Sydney, telling me he had one other vocation to pursue. He wanted to be a successful farmer. He opened a medical practice in Yass. His daughters, brilliant daughters, also doctors, assisted him. The family was full of really bright people. He bought a farm not far from Yass, and that too became a remarkable success. Well, he died. The funeral was at Yass. He wanted to be buried on the farm. It was a very hot day. The grave had been dug. We all headed out there. A very kindly priest had presided at the church. He knew Doc well. But before the coffin was being lowered, or as it was being lowered, into the grave on the farm, the priest gently reminded us that we should remember who the real owners of this land are and mention some tribe that most had never heard of. I shook my head and said to one of his daughters beside me, Doc worked his backside off night and day to own this land, and here we are about to lower him into the grave, and we're being told he isn't the real owner. Now, this nonsense has got to stop because, remember, it's now being said by some that because we aren't the owners, we're going to have to pay rent to whomever the real owners are. Someone's got to stand up to this nonsense. As the historian Keith Winshuttle said, quote, two decades ago, this ritual was unknown. That is welcome to country. He said, quote, it was introduced without public debate, let alone public support, and its authors have never been named or their purposes justified, unquote. But, says historian Keith Winshuttle, since the passing of the Native Title Act in 1993, quote, this has been foisted on a mystified public as though it had the sanction of deep Indigenous tradition, unquote. But this stuff, as you know, is commonplace in schools, universities, boardrooms, sport and the arts. You can't escape it. This is what young Australians are being taught, browbeaten to the point of intimidation, which prevents them from challenging the notion of invasion or challenging the notion that they must accept that another people unknown to them own the land that they live on, that are being educated on, that are performing on or even being buried on. This stuff is following Australians to the grave. Well, some Indigenous academics might regard 1788 as a year of invasion 
and the unknown Indigenous Australians own this land. They are a minority, but they're entitled to that view. But they are not entitled to browbeat other Australians into agreeing or to argue via welcome to country that the land we live on isn't actually ours, that we should be grateful that the traditional owners allow us to generate a wealth and a lifestyle, a lifestyle from which all Australians benefit, including Indigenous Australians. Well, let's go to Peggy Grandy in America, where sadly for the free world, the leader doesn't seem to change. Just have a look at these exchanges. Are you taking blame for inflation, no. Why not? Because it was already there when I got here, man. Remember what the economy was like when I got here? Can you believe this? Do I take any blame for inflation? He says, no. And the reporter says, why not? He says, because it was already there when I got here. As is customary then, Biden turned away, terrified of further questions that he couldn't answer. The reality is inflation was 1.4% when Biden took office. It's now 6.5%. It's worth noting that Joe Biden's last solo press conference was on November 14, 85 days ago. According to recent CBS polls, 51 or 61% of Americans rate the economy as bad under Biden. 166 million Americans are living paycheck to paycheck, including 51% who are making $100,000 or more. Inflation has outpaced wage growth for 21 months. Gas prices are up for the last five weeks in a row. Yet you've got an incoherent president who wants to run for a second term. Have a look at this. We've united the, we've united the Asia. <laughs> I don't know. We've united the Asia. Okay. You think that's enough? Have a look at this. And the Democrats are still saying this man should run again. See if you can work out what he's saying here. And, and the, re, re, the re calibration of last month. I defy anyone to understand what this bloke is on about. Allowing him in the public place to suffer this humiliation borders on elderly abuse. And if you're still not sure of this man's inability to articulate, let alone lead, listen to this. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than, more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. <laughs> I mean, it's not laughable. This is tragic. You heard what he said. More than half the women in my administration are women. Let's go to Peggy. Peggy, Happy New Year. Great to have you continuing on the program with your insights. But what on earth does America make of this man? Well, it's wonderful to be here, Alan. Thank you for having me on. America sees exactly what the world sees. And maybe this was funny when he was the vice president, when he could just tell jokes and kiss babies and go to funerals. But this is serious now. And it's seriously concerning to the American people who are watching this very steady, noticeable decline. We've been talking about this and kind of joking for two years about it. But there is a progression that everybody is seeing. And so American people are very worried about this. And even the Democrats now are quietly and some not quite so quietly behind the scenes talking mm. about maybe he shouldn't be our nominee. Yeah. But then they turn their heads and look at Kamala and think, 
I don't know what we're going to do That's about it. her. Yeah. The scariest part about all of this is that the world sees weakness. And mm. with the spy balloon that went over the entire United States this past week, we know that Donald Trump wouldn't have had to shoot it down because they never would have even tried it. And so we see weakness abroad. We see weakness domestically, which creates weakness and aggression mm. abroad. Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, and the Democrats are scratching around to find a candidate other than Biden. Now, look, after all the hoopla about classified documents in Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago residence, more than 100 classified documents have now been found in Joe Biden's Delaware office and garage. The difference is, is it not, a president can declassify documents, a vice president can't, and these are documents in Joe Biden's garage from his time as vice president. Has this received the critical analysis it deserves? Well, if you listen to certain voices on television or radio, it is receiving that scrutiny because there is a huge difference here that needs to be stated. Donald Trump's documents, while they may have been disputed by NARA, there was a complete chain of custody that was controlled and noticeable. They went right from the White House to Mar-a-Lago, which, by the way, is protected 24-7 by United States Secret Service, and he does have the capacity to declassify documents. Joe Biden, on the other hand, some of these are from a long time ago. And he says, oh, there's no there there. I take this seriously. Well, he doesn't take it seriously if there's documents there and there and there and there. He doesn't know where they've been, where they are. Mm -hmm. And surprises showing up. Mm -hmm. I'm not surprised. Well, that, so that the, 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 the point Paul is, Peggy, yeah, Peggy, the point is that Donald Trump's facing a federal criminal probe. Now, Peggy, I note the Republican chairman of the House Oversight Committee has demanded that visitor logs for President Biden's house in Delaware be made public. Now, the simple story is top secret material has been found in Biden's house, but Hunter Biden turned his father's Delaware mansion into a home office while it was stuffed with classified documents on countries with whom Hunter Biden did business. Now, Peggy, isn't it true that Hunter Biden used his father's Delaware home as an address after his divorce? So, Peggy, has Hunter Biden been conducting business from the location of classified documents? unsecured classified documents. It sure looks like it. And in fact, he was paying his father rent upwards of $50,000 a month for a bedroom in his father's house. This is crazy. You know, Joe Biden says, oh, they were secure. They were, you know, in my garage locked by locked up by my Corvette. But the American people are very concerned about this. Is Has America been compromised? Is our national security compromised? Is Joe Biden and his family compromised? It, has there been influence peddling happening? And we certainly are seeing elements of that. I think we're going to find more and more of that as the days go on. But Hunter Biden certainly is in the thick of this. But he's not the one that American people are worried about. They're worried about his dad, the big guy. Joe Biden, the president of the United States, yeah. is he compromised? Yeah. I mean, having access to U.S. classified material, as Hunter Biden would have, would make it much easier for him to leverage his business operations. Now, you basically at the time, if you've got these classified documents, you'd know things that others don't know or can't know. Peggy, Hunter Biden has well publicized problems with drugs and addiction. So 
was he vulnerable to allowing outsiders access to the information? I mean, surely the discovery of another stack of documents in Biden's Delaware home must raise questions about his intention to run for a second time. Absolutely. And this should raise red flags because anybody else who was on the president of the United yes. States, if they had improperly handled classified documents, they would have been fired immediately. Yes. They yes. would have lost their parents and probably been disbarred from federal service in perpetuity. And so here's Hunter Biden, who we've actually seen now on his laptop. There's been documentation which suspiciously looks like he has transferred classified information, almost verbatim. And so as the Congress continues to look into this, there's going to be more to see. But it certainly appears that he is compromised, which means the president is compromised and the Biden yeah, family I mean, has been involved. Well, in that's, that's right. I mean, this bloke condemned Donald Trump. He called it totally irresponsible behavior when top secret documents were found at President Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate in Florida last year. Yet here we have Biden mishandling official records, doesn't even know where they are, some dating back to his years as a U.S. senator, which ended in 2008, then his term as vice president, which ended in 2017. Now Biden is singing from a different song sheet. He reckons, oh, I've got no idea how any of them ended up in my home, some in the garage. Peggy, at least Hunter Biden has finally admitted that the infamous laptop is his and is now sending letters to prosecutors demanding investigations into Trump allies, arguing that Hunter Biden never consented to the personal information on his laptop to be shared. Now, where is this going to end? I mean, the stuff on that laptop is such that you and I couldn't even talk about. But the lawyers are saying, well, this was abandoned property. And lawyers are saying that raising concerns now indicates how devastating the texts and the videos from Hunter Biden's laptop really are. Peggy, is the House Oversight Committee chairman, a new man now, James Comer, has he called Hunter Biden a witness in an investigation into the Biden family influence peddling, focusing on Hunter Biden's business deals with China. Well, they haven't yet, and they've made it very clear that this is not about going after somebody who has had um, brush-ups with the law and has had problems with drugs and all those things. This is about, has he compromised the United States of America? And isn't it an interesting strategy that after all of these national security heads um, said that the, Russian, that the laptop was Russian disinformation, after all of the denial of this laptop, now his best offense is to not play defense of things that are indefensible. We know that they're true now. And so he has really had to pivot and say, okay, I'm going to go after the people who released it. Yeah. So now, of course, we know what we knew all along. It wasn't Russian disinformation. It was true from the very beginning. Yeah. And there's a lot of questions that still need to be answered. Absolutely. Listen, just before we go, I want to go to you with this debt ceiling. Now, we in Australia, rightly or wrongly, have abolished the government's debt ceiling. I mean, I know you haven't. Just for our viewers' benefit, outstanding U.S. government debt in 2011 was U.S. $10.1 trillion, 2011. It was just under $12 trillion in 2013. Today, it's at more than $31 trillion. The debt ceiling is $31.4 trillion. America is about to reach that. So, Peggy, what happens then? I mean, uh, does America stop writing the checks? Well, you know, the Congress has threatened a government shutdown, which, honestly, Ronald Reagan used to say that 
government is not the solution. It's the problem. So maybe that would be the best thing. But we know that America is not going to default on his debt. But we also cannot continue down this path. And I appreciate this Congress for making a stand and saying we are no longer going to kick the can down to generations upon generations of America who are going to suffer under the weight of this debt. Joe Biden has increased the debt exponentially. He's trying to blame Trump, who obviously accrued a lot of debt during COVID, but we were coming out of that. We didn't need this reckless runaway government spending, which is causing the very inflation that's harming the American people. Just so, interrupting you there, Peggy, just interrupting you there. Runaway, but Peggy just made this point about runaway, runaway debt. In the three months of last year alone, three months, Washington ran up a $418 billion deficit, more than our government's entire annual revenue. And they say the shortfall this year is expected to be a little below $1 trillion and forecast to increase to $2.5 trillion or 6% of GDP. Peggy, this growth in debt is not sustainable, is it? No, it's not. And the American people, I think, are finally waking up to this. When you see the numbers that come out, it's almost a quarter of a million dollars that every single taxpaying American has been strapped with, with this debt. The, the government needs to remember it's not their money. It's our money. Correct. And the American yeah. taxpayer, I think, is rising up to this. Families, small businesses, we have to balance our budgets and balance our checkbooks. And we expect government to do the same. And so mm. I'm hoping that this new Congress will at least yep. raise these issues. McCarthy's already had a conversation with Biden. Mm. They're a long ways apart, but Absolutely. at least they're doing the right thing Absolutely. by raising the question. I mean, great stuff. Actually, where things are at the moment, and we'll leave it there for tonight, but the numbers in the House... Uh, have the Republicans got the numbers in the House. They say they won't lift the debt ceiling until they can extract some spending cuts. Biden says he won't negotiate. Mind you, when Biden was vice president, he was always talking about negotiating when they have the side, cross the aisle and so on. So he's now singing from a separate sheet of music. Peggy, great to talk to you. Wonderful start to the year. Talk to you next week. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Alan. There she is, Peggy Grande. And of course, she was uh, executive assistant to the great American President Ronald Reagan. Now, there are over 3.3 million Australian homeowners who, if they didn't wake with a headache this morning, they will have one now. The Reserve Bank Governor, as you've heard, has announced a further increase in interest rates of 25 basis points. Now, watch the banks pass it all on to battling mortgage holders. Some already have. Even though last year the big four made $28.5 billion in cash profits. Mind you, some say that the cash rate should have been even higher today, but today brings the rate to 3.35%. The banks will charge you any number above that. Most probably, they'll go the whole hog. The cash rate was 0.1% last May. So borrowers will fork out, if it's a $500,000 loan, almost another $1,000 a month. And if the starting debt is a million, another 1,800 a month compared to what you were paying before the RBA began its unprecedented run of rate increases. Where then does the governor of the Reserve Bank, Philip Lowe, stand? This is the bloke who thinks that climate change and the transition to renewable energy are critical to the future of the Australian economy. My advice is don't rely on this bloke's judgment. He's the bloke behind the decision to scrap King Charles III from the $5 note and replace it with a new design that, quote, honours the culture and history of first Australians. 
What about the other Australians? This is the bloke who misled millions of Australians on the critical issue of interest rates, a mistake that's plunged millions of households into mortgage stress and financial turmoil. Now get this, in March 2021, Governor Lowe said he believed that the official cash rate, the rate that determines the interest you pay on your mortgage, would remain at the historic low of 0.1%, quote, at least until 2024. Australians believed him. Hundreds of thousands of Australians took on large mortgages to buy their dream home, seeking to take advantage of low interest rates. And the governor's promise that they'd remain low, he thought, at least until 2024. And Lowe failed to keep the promise. His judgment was rubbish. Since April last year, the Reserve Bank has hiked interest rates at perhaps the fastest rate in recorded history, from 0.1% to where it is today, 3.35%. The ramifications for mortgage holders, 35% of the 9.8 million Australians who own a home, the ramifications are profound. As the price of fuel, food, electricity and travel continue to soar, monthly mortgage repayments have increased by over 40% in fewer than nine months. It bears repeating, the largest bill the average household pays is its monthly mortgage repayment, which has gone by, up by almost 50% in fewer than nine months. We've had no apology from the Reserve Bank. All we've heard from Governor Philip Lowe is a demand that Australian workers accept a pay cut for the greater good. He said, and I quote, I know it's very difficult for people to accept the idea that wages don't rise with inflation and people are experiencing declines in real wages. That's tough. The alternative, that is a pay rise, is more difficult, unquote. The catch? Well, it doesn't look like Governor Lowe, who enjoys a $1 million plus taxpayer funded salary, is going to take a pay cut himself. So after plunging hundreds of thousands of Australians into mortgage stress, and then telling workers to cop a pay cut, the man won't take one himself. The question that he's answering is this, are these rate hikes working? Lowe says he wants to kill inflation, but the major causes of inflation in Australia have little to do with interest rates. Power prices are high because we're not allowed to build a new coal-fired power plant. And we're being forced to rely on weather-dependent, Chinese-made solar panels and wind turbines. Food prices are high because we can't build a dam to capture the flooding rains that have destroyed many of our crops over the last few years. Rents are high because red tape and green tape, along with 440,000 people added to our population last year, are pushing rents through the roof. Raising interest rates won't address any of these inflationary concerns, which prompts the important question. Lowe was wrong in the statement he made in March 2021 that historically low interest rates may persist until at least 2024. But is he wrong again? Because interest rate increases will not relieve pressure on the big cost of living concerns like energy, food and housing. Instead, these interest rate increases are burying the battler in more debt. Work that out. Email me. Come on. I'd love to hear from you. Alan Jones at ADH.TV. That's it from me tonight. I'll see you tomorrow night. You're watching ADH. Good night.